Good morning. My name's Kevin. If I haven't met you, I have the privilege of serving as pastor here at Grace Fellowship. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 this morning. We've been looking at uh, this book of Revelation the past few weeks. And really just the beginning. The book begins with uh, Jesus speaking to seven churches. uh, Churches that existed in Asia Minor. So if you see the map behind me. Uh, It's what we would call modern-day Turkey, Uh, and all of these churches uh, were along the same route. Uh, And we've said that these uh, these letters that Jesus is sending to these churches are something like report cards, that Jesus is evaluating how these churches are doing, particularly as they seek to be witness-bearers in the world, Uh, and as they uh, each of them faces different pressures to compromise. And What we've seen so far is that there's really, we we could say there's three different kinds of pressure, but they're all related. The first would be religious pressure, Uh, the the pressure to compromise the gospel by saying that that Jesus and Caesar are both worthy of worship, Uh, that that Jesus can be worshipped as Lord alongside uh, Zeus and Caesar and and whomever else, right? Uh, And along with that religious pressure comes uh, moral pressure because to worship Caesar and to worship some of these other Roman deities meant that uh, you had to participate in their feast. You had to eat their food and you had to commit acts of sexual immorality. So there was a moral pressure to it. And then along with that, there was also cultural pressure that if you did not participate in the worship of Caesar and these other gods, that you were excluded from society. So let's say you're a stonemason. In order to get work, you've got to be a part of the guild. But in order to be a part of the guild, you have to worship the way that the guild says worship. And so if, you're, if you become a Christian, then you say, well, hey, I, I can't do this. And the guild would say, well, that's fine. You just don't have any work. Right? So it was their, their livelihoods would even be threatened. So these are the kind of pressures that are facing these churches. And what we've seen as we've gone through these churches is that that uh, Jesus reports something different for, for each one, uh, but only two of them, only two of them receive no rebuke whatsoever. They receive only commendation for the, from the Lord. Four of them receive both encouragement and rebuke. So Jesus says, hey, you're, you've got this going for you, but you've got to watch out for this. Uh, and it would seem that Jesus, you know, we talk about saving the best for last. Jesus seems to have saved the worst for last because Laodicea is the only church that receives no commendation whatsoever, no encouragement, but only rebuke. And so let's give our attention to God's word. I've, I've, I've given you fair warning. This is going to feel something like a paddling. Um, but remember what we just sang that this is the sword that makes the wounded whole. And so let's bear that in mind as we give our attention to God's word. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. 
For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father, once again, we hear a hard word here. And so we would pray that you would help us to understand it rightly and to apply it rightly. Lord, if we need to wake up, would you wake us up this morning? And would you comfort us where we need to be comforted? Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher, um, and he tells a story of a duck, a wild duck, who was flying south for the winter. Uh, and as he and his flock were making the, their way south, they passed over uh, some, some farmland, and they saw there in the barnyard some other ducks, and they were grazing on some corn that had been thrown out. And so the, the, the ducks swoop down into the barnyard, and they gather around, and they start eating. Uh, and then this one particular duck, uh, as his, the, the rest of his buddies get ready to, to fly off uh, and, and head further south, he decides to stay, right? He, he looks around him. He sees that, that food is provided, and best of all, it's provided by someone else. Somebody brings you food every day. Uh, and, and there's a warm barn right there that he can go into and, and sleep in. And so he decides not to continue on the journey, but to stay there in the barnyard with these other domesticated ducks. And so he stays for the winter. Uh, and then the next spring, as it moves, uh, as the weather gets warmer, uh, and as he's making his way out of the barn, uh, heading for the corn pile, he hears that familiar quacking sound in the sky. And he looks up and realizes that his friends are now flying back north for the summer. Uh, and after grabbing a mouthful of corn, he decides that he too wants to go ahead and fly back north, that he's ready to be done with the, the barnyard. Uh, and so he begins running his little duck feet and flapping his great duck wings. Uh, but much to his surprise, he can't manage to get more than several feet off the ground. You see, over the course of the winter and having ready food, this duck had become too fat, too complacent to fly. He was stuck. Uh, and that's where the church of Laodicea is. They have grown too complacent. 
Uh, they, they think that everything's good, right? They would say, we, we've got everything we need. We're in good shape. But in reality, Jesus says they are in great danger. They don't actually see how needy they really are. And so Jesus has a stern rebuke for them. But not only does Jesus rebuke them sternly, but we're also going to see that he shows them great grace. Uh, in fact, this letter is a great study in what repentance looks like. I know we talk about that. Uh, it's not a word that's used much outside of the church, but it's actually the normal, the normal way of the Christian life, right? Uh, there's, this is a great two-step look at repentance. One, right, first we have to receive God's rebuke. We have to receive what Jesus says about us. We have to see what we truly are. Jesus doesn't leave us there. After we receive the rebuke, we also have to receive God's grace. We have to receive the grace of Jesus that brings renewal. So that's, those are the two headings that we're going to look at this passage under this morning. Uh, first, let's talk about what it looks like to receive the rebuke. What does it look like to, to get a rebuke from Jesus? How do we receive that? How do we see ourselves as we truly are? Uh, some of you... Uh, may know we spent the summer of 2008 in China. Uh, Rebecca and I did, and the, uh, that experience was enough to convince me that I probably would not be a very good cross-cultural missionary, uh, particularly in Asian cultures, and it doesn't have anything to do with Asian cultures, and it has all to do with my nose. Uh, I have this incredible sense of smell. It's like my mutant superpower, um, it's not very useful um, because I can smell everything bad, like for miles, it seems like, right? So, so right, we would be making our way down the sidewalk in China, you know, very fragrant, odiferous, like street markets. And then we would pass like a sewer grate. And the combination of those smells, or, good Lord, the bathrooms, right, the public restrooms, um, you could smell them coming, or I could smell them coming, okay? Um, and so, I just, like, the smells would just turn my stomach. Well, have you, ever, have you ever asked yourself this question? What is it that turns Jesus' stomach? What is it that makes Jesus so nauseous that he actually wants to throw up? Maybe a particular sin comes to mind, or maybe... Deep in your heart of hearts, a particular group of sinners. But actually what Jesus says makes him so sick he wants to throw up is a useless church. A complacent, useless church. That's what he means when he calls them lukewarm. You may, have, you may be familiar with this passage and have heard it preached before. It's commonly said that when, when Jesus says that they're lukewarm and they need to either be cold or hot... That it's talking about their love for Jesus, right? That they're, that they're lukewarm in their love for Jesus. Um, but I don't think that's quite right because then Jesus would be saying, Oh, I wish you were cold to me, apathetic, like hateful to me, or I wish you were hot for me. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, A, because I, it doesn't seem right that Jesus would say, Well, I wish, you were, I wish you were cold to me, right? I wish you didn't want anything to do with me. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus would say. And it doesn't really fit the context. You see, in Laodicea, uh, even though it was a prosperous, thriving commercial center, Laodicea had no good water supply. 
the nearby town of Colossae, they had cold springs. They were famous for that. So you could get a, a nice cold drink in Colossae. And the city of Hierapolis, which was also nearby, they were famous for hot springs. And people would go there uh, for healing and refreshment, right? Who doesn't love to sit in a jacuzzi? That's, that was Hierapolis. But Laodicea had neither. In fact, their water supply had to be piped via an aqueduct from Hierapolis. So you can imagine it started out hot there, and by the time it traveled the aqueduct down to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. Right, who, who likes a lukewarm bath? Who likes to drink lukewarm water? Right? It's, not, it's not good for anything. In fact, not only was it lukewarm, but it didn't taste very good. And so what Jesus is saying is not that, they're, that their hearts are lukewarm towards him. He's saying that they're good for nothing. He wishes that they were either cold and refreshing or that they were hot, that they were therapeutic and healing. I mean, that's, that's what the gospel is. It provides refreshment and healing. And Jesus is saying that this church has so compromised the gospel that they offer neither. They, are, they, they offer no refreshment. They offer no healing therapy to the neighbors around them. They are good for nothing. What about us? What do people uh, think when we walk into a room? Do, do thirsty people come to you looking for a drink? Do hurting people come to you looking for words of healing? Do people know? Does your demeanor invite people to what you have to say, even if it's a hard word? You know the old saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Are we church characterized by our love that gains a hearing for what we have to say how did this church get this way what has made this church lukewarm well look at verse 17 jesus diagnoses the the problem he says for you say i am rich i've prospered and i need nothing there it is Prosperity has blinded them to their own need, right? Because they have everything that they, or they think they have everything that they need, they don't see their own spiritual need, and it has therefore made them lukewarm, useless, ineffective. You see, Laodicea as a city was so well off that um, when an earthquake hit the city in A.D. 60... Uh, the government offered help, as it did to other cities in the region. The gover government offered help to rebuild, and Laodicea said, nope, we don't need it. We got it, we got it covered. They were, they were so well off that they needed, no, they, they needed nothing. They needed no assistance. Laodicea is a wealthy city. Laodicea was uh, famous for its clothing industry, the, the wool of black sheep. They used it uh, there, and it, they, it was famous around the, around the region. They also had a medical school there that had developed an eye medicine. They were famous for that. 
Right, so Laodicea had all these things going for it. And so with that in mind, listen to what Jesus says to them. You say I am rich, I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus says, you think you're a Wall Street billionaire. But actually, you're the crippled homeless guy who smells of body odor and urine. That's who you really are. And you don't see it. So, wealth has made them self-sufficient. And self-sufficiency, I need nothing, has blinded them to their true need. They might be material, materially rich, but they are spiritually poor and they don't even know it. Can you see how this speaks to us, the church in America? Can you see why, why this might be directed particularly at us, how it targets us? Even here in, in little old Clanton, little old Grace Fellowship, we're not a particularly influential or wealthy group of people. And yet, we're still wealthier than 90% of the world. Has our own material prosperity made us... Uh, desensitized us to our needs. I mean, we, we live in a culture where I can get anything I want. Right? We're, we're beyond basic needs at this point. I can get anything I want. Has it desensitized you? Has it desensitized me to our real need before the Lord? Affluence tends to create apathy and complacency, right? I, I no longer need God because I can help myself. Let me ask the men in particular in our church. Let me direct this to you. Right? We, we, love, we love the image of strength and independence. Right? But we are not meant to cultivate a sense of strength and power and independence apart from the Lord. Men, what your world and what your wives and what your children need more than anything is not your strong, independent spirit, but needs you to be dependent on the Lord alone, right? Needs our humility. And so we need to receive that rebuke, right? We need to, we need to see ourselves as God sees us. Apart from him, we are poor and blind and naked. But then I also want you to see that God doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us poor, blind, and naked, Right? I want you to, to listen to the, the tenderness of Jesus as he offers them grace. Now, you might say, uh, tenderness? Grace? I didn't, I didn't see any of that in, uh, in that little message there. I didn't, where is the grace in this passage? Well, the very fact that Jesus warns us tells us that he loves us. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Right? The, a loving father is one who disciplines his children. In fact, Hebrews 12.8 says that if we are left without discipline, if we're not disciplined, then we're basically illegitimate children. Right? A loving father disciplines his children. And so Jesus says... I discipline those whom I love. 
He's quoting from Proverbs 3. I wouldn't correct you if I didn't care. Back up in verse 16, uh, the ESV reads, I will spit you out of my mouth, but the better translation would be, I am about to. Jesus is warning them, but he hasn't let go of his judgment yet, right? He hasn't, he hasn't brought it about yet. There's still time. He says, I am about to. He's, he's patiently delaying his judgment. And look at verse 18. Not only does he reveal their true condition, he tells them that they're poor, blind, and naked, but then look at verse 18. He promises to meet it exactly. He says, I counsel you. Not, not I command you, but I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So Jesus says, you're spiritually poor. Great. I have pure gold. Get it from me. Jesus says, you're naked, but that's okay. I have white garments to clothe you and to cover your shame. Jesus says, you're blind, but I have eye salve that can make you see. Come to me. Buy these things from me. Kevin, if I'm spiritually poor, how can I buy those things from Jesus? How could I, how could I ever afford those things? You can't afford it. Jesus gives it freely. That's why it's called grace. Remember what we read earlier in Isaiah 55, that promise of God. He says, come by. It doesn't make any sense. Grace doesn't make sense to, to my logic. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The answer, friend, to complacency is not more self-sufficiency. It's humility. It's giving up that sense of like, you know, it's, it's what Francis Schaeffer calls, right? Francis Schaeffer, a theologian, says that true spirituality, true faith is living before God with an open hand. Right? So not the clenched fist of rebellion, not the white knuckles of, of self-determination, but open-handed. Living before God with the open hand of faith. It's realizing that you can't meet your own need and that you need Jesus to meet it for you. And then here is invitation in verse 20. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, come, anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him. Jesus speaks like a husband knocking on his wife's bedroom door. Or the master calling for his servants to come and open the door. Or uh, the friend, the host, who wants people uh, to invite him in so they can have a meal together, right? And in this part of the world, and it's true in our part, it's, in, it's true in our, our world as well, that having a meal together is intimate. It's fellowship. It's conversation. It's communion, right? This isn't evangelistic. This is Jesus talking to believers saying, let me back in. Let's, let's renew this relationship again. Let's restore our fellowship. Let's commune together. Right? That's, that's what Jesus says is the remedy. 
Not that they would become more doggedly determined and self-sufficient, but that they would see their need and say, Jesus, come back, I need you. I can't do this without you. And if you doubt Jesus' grace in these words, listen to his offer in verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. How different Jesus is than me. If, if, this, were, if this were me, I would create a, a tiered system of faithfulness and rewards, right? Uh, I, like I would create a caste system of, of who showed the most faithfulness. I would say, okay, yep, everybody gets in, but you guys remain faithful the longest, so you get tier one. Uh, you guys over there, tier two, you did fine. The re- then the rest of you, you got in by the hair of your chinny-chin-chin. You're in, but you get tier three. But what does Jesus say? He says, if you repent and you overcome, you get to sit with me. The lukewarm Christians and the faithful being persecuted Christians, they receive the same reward. Kevin, that's not fair. I know. It's grace. Is there anything better? Is there anything, is there anything that you could buy that's better than that? Is there any treasure more worth selling everything for to get than that? That's what Jesus offers. That's what Jesus offers complacent, material addicted people who have become ineffective. He says, come back. Come back to me. Let's restore our relationship. So what's your approach this morning? Jesus tells a story in Luke 18, one of his many parables. You'll find it in Luke 18, verse 9. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Very smug, very self-sufficient. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Would you be justified before God this morning? And see your need, receive the rebuke, and receive the grace that Jesus gives. Amen.